Hello and welcome to episode 9 of the Blocks Decoded podcast. It's great to have you here and I'm here with regular contributors Dan. Hello guys. Gavin. Yo. And James. Greetings. On the podcast this week we're going to be taking a look at some recent news items. This week we have seen the Litecoin block reward halving. We have seen the potential anti-money laundering rules coming in for crypto in Thailand. And we have seen the conclusion of the drawn-out and dramatic Roger Ver Wright court case. After that, we're going to take a quick look at some of our recent articles. We're going to look at Bitcoin-backed loans. We're going to take a look at what is the hash rate. And then Dan's going to take us through what is the best way to secure your Bitcoin wallet keys. Dan doesn't know the answer to that. <laughs> Hopefully we'll find out soon. <laughs> Stay tuned to find out. <laughs> Recently, Litecoin did something which it has been building up to for four years. And over the last six months, the Litecoin price has been dramatically climbing to reflect this four yearly Olympics of the crypto world, the Litecoin halving. <laughs> so if you don't know, this is where the block reward for mining Litecoin cuts in half and it happens every four years so a couple of days ago this reduced from the previous limit of 25 litecoins per block to 12.5 litecoins this happens to bitcoin and statistically although this is not investment advice when bitcoin halves the price goes crazy within one year of the halving so investors are very excited about this halving for litecoin and the price went crazy. It almost went four times in six months in anticipation of it. And right as we were on the cusp of it happening, everyone got cold feet and they, they almost dumped their bags. So what do you guys think of this? Are you suggesting then that the price is going to rally again, Joe? Is that what you're saying? Or, or we've already seen the rally? Historically, the price always rallies following a halving. Following the halving, okay. Yes, but with Litecoin, we saw the price rally in anticipation of the sure, halving. Obviously, sure. we didn't reach the all-time high again, but there was significant interest and hype building, and that almost dropped off, certainly around the day of the day after. Mm -hmm. I remember before the previous halving, uh, Litecoin halving, back in 2015, there was a similar sort of dip in price uh, actually before the halving event completed. Um and I don't think it's exactly the same as we've we've just seen with lots and lots of money um, exiting the Litecoin market. But there was a similar price decrease actually before the halving event occurred. And I think it's only it's sort of been magnified because there's so much more money now within the Litecoin market. So I think that speaks to maybe why the history sort of the pattern is uh, repeating again. No, I was going to say this is the third halvening now is it for litecoin mm -hmm. uh third maybe third i don't know i don't know i'm asking well, if I'm it started at 50 like bitcoin then well this would be the second wouldn't it second second okay okay so there's not a lot of historical data there to suggest not like bitcoin where there's been a couple already yeah well this is the second like like it would be for bitcoin it's like basically a precursor mm -hmm. to it almost isn't it mm -hmm. okay Dropping from 25 down to uh, 12 and a half. Mm -hmm. So if you're a miner, you'll typically like to see the price increase at least double 
after a halving because then you're going to get the same money for your mining effort. Whereas if the price stayed the same, you're now getting half what you used to. And I don't know, don't know about you, but if I was mining and suddenly I'm getting less money with no potential for it to go back up again, I, I wouldn't keep mining it. Sure. Well, yeah, I've read somewhere that um, the the price drip, dropping down may now make it less affordable for people to actually do the mining. So they'd be losing money because of the electricity cost. So whether you still get the same amount of interest in Litecoin over the next couple of weeks after the halving will be interesting to see. Yes, precisely. Will, we'll see more about some of the potential downsides to this when we come on to our hash rate article, which uh, can apply to Bitcoin or Litecoin or any proof of work cryptocurrency. So moving on to Thailand, which is very far away for the majority of us here in England and Dan over in Mexico, <laughs> Thailand's anti-money laundering regulator is planning to amend the country's laws to include cryptocurrency. So, so who been... was it? Who was it? But, uh... I'll be getting on to that. No, I'll be getting <laughs> They haven't specifically mentioned um, which cryptocurrency, which is perhaps a sign they know what they're talking about. They haven't said we're going to you know, ban Bitcoin or bring Litecoin under our anti-money money laundering rules, just cryptocurrency in general. <laughs> speaking, to, <laughs> speaking to the Bangkok Post, Police Major General Preacher Charoen Sahayanon. The Secretary General of the Anti-Money Laundering Office they have a whole office for this. He believes that while cryptocurrency money laundering is perhaps not a problem right now, that doesn't mean it's not happening, and that doesn't mean it won't happen in the future, and that they need to do something about this. So what are your thoughts on this, guys? My favourite thing about this is that he said he's not received any complaints and has no evidence of the wrongdoing, but he suspects there probably is some, so he wants to regulate it anyway. <laughs> well, it's like any good policeman, he's got a hunch that people are doing something illegal, so he's going to, you know, pick that yeah. thread until he finds something there. And to it's be fair, to meddling him, he's kids. Not wrong. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I don't think he's wrong. You know, I mean. We've seen all over the world that crypto is and has been used for money laundering. We only talked about in our last podcast the the IRS in the United States training their staff to to track down Bitcoin and other cryptocurrency wallets, haven't we? So other countries are understandably shoring up their own regulations to make sure that people can't launder money in their countries. You know, I think if he's the the chief of police or the chief of the Bangkok police or sorry, the sec secretary general of the Thai anti money laundering office, I think it's definitely well within his remit to start looking at cryptos. Yes, yeah, precisely. It looks like he wants uh, cryptocurrency exchange platforms to report their activities to his office, um, and then they use that data to try and work out whether people are laundering money or not. I mean, it's back to what we've spoken about in previous episodes, isn't it? That even if they can then prove the wrongdoing, finding the people that are doing the wrongdoing, even if they can find evidence of it happening, is a much tougher task. And will we just yeah, see the say, thing... Yes it's, ha yes, it's happening, but then what? How do you find these people and prosecute them? It's not so easy. Absolutely. And will we just see the thing where the exchanges just say, no, that's fine, we just won't trade in your country anymore, don't worry about it. Mm -hmm. Well, it depends what exchange you use because um, many of them require know your customer verification. So 
most of the time we know. But I kind of think if you're doing really shady stuff, you wouldn't be buying your crypto on Coinbase. Yeah, right. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I, I have this fuzzy memory of, I believe it was one or two years ago in the UK, maybe other countries, Coinbase uh, were ordered to provide information on their customers to the British. Really? I don't remember that. This, wow. this I may be just pulling this out of my bum. <laughs> this just, <laughs> I have this fuzzy memory. I really should have um, looked into this before we started the podcast. Uh, <laughs> give me one second give me one second uh, it was a long time ago now so sorry you think they were just reporting who their customers uh, are or they were reporting well, no I'm sure they were ordered to um, oh this was actually recently but I'm sure it's happened before okay so the British government HM Revenue and Customs are requesting that cryptocurrency exchanges reveal their customers' names and transaction histories, which I believe we discussed on the podcast. Mm. Um, okay, so it's quite recent. I'm sure it happened before. I'm sure it's probably happened multiple times as Coinbase has grown and captured more and more of the crypto market and is the major on-ramp. So it's an easy way for for people to or governments to track down who's suddenly got a hundred thousand pounds worth of cryptocurrency when their income shows that they only earn five thousand pounds or something you know mm -hmm. easy to connect those big big dots and um, just going back to what i think dan said about the platforms just refusing to operate in certain rate in certain regions um, it says here that thailand is a member of the financial action task force which was set up in 1989 and that's a group of 39 members who are, and that board recently issued recommendations that the cryptocurrency exchanges and platforms report suspicious transactions. So it's not a million miles away that the FATF may uh, actually ask the exchanges to provide all of their transaction information as well. Mm -hmm. So the things that Thailand is suggesting may actually come to pass as part of this larger 39 member group. Ah. You can see it yeah. rolled out in more countries anyway. Yeah, we're mm. seeing, we've discussed this on the podcast quite a lot now, haven't we, right? About laws and uh, regulations and reporting. So I think it's fair to say that more and more companies are taking interest and starting to put measures in place to track people down. Whether or not you think that's a good thing, I don't know. Make sure you send us a tweet at Battery Video. Check out our show notes. Tell us what you think of cryptocurrency anti-money laundering rules and regulations moving on to in what could be considered by some to be the biggest cryptocurrency lawsuit this year at the very least craig wright versus roger ver in the uk court has ruled that there is there's nothing going on and what's interesting here is that they ruled that they have a lack of jurisdiction rather than we don't think there's anything going on and so Recently, Justice Nicklin wrote that the claimant has not satisfied me that England and Wales is clearly the most appropriate place to bring this action for defamation over the publications complained of. In consequence, the court has no jurisdiction to hear and determine the action. The action will be struck out. He goes on to say that the evidence clearly demonstrates the most substantial portion of the statements complained of is in the US. 
It is common ground that of the global publication, only some 7% took place in England and Wales. So there you have it. Craig Wright, who has been suing everybody left, right and centre, should perhaps start suing them in the US, where they're, compared to the UK, they are far more trigger happy with their suing. I mean, he has, the, the, judge, the, uh, the judge did also say that, <clears throat> let me read the quote here, uh, that the claim was weak, lacks detail, and uh, the evidence has a level of generality that is almost entirely speculative. So although he's not ruled on it, he still basically said, this is ridiculous. Get out. Get out of my court, you know. Mm. Do you think this is approached to um, just tie people up in lawsuits? And even if you know you're not going to win, maybe make them lose a bit of money, um, certainly use their time. I think there was... Definitely- calling people's bluff. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. It's just putting people into the situation where they either have to back down and apologise or or front up the money to take him all the way. And um, if people have the money, thankfully, some of these the people that he is taking to court have the backing of their friends or have enough money to do it themselves, mm-hmm. uh, like Peter McCormack and, uh, and Vitalik Buterin and, and what have you. So were, were all these various things, it's only been brought in the UK. There's, there's, no, there's no pending US lawsuits from Craig Wright at all. Uh, well, this is, just, this is just one lawsuit of many. Yes, yes. But is there any in the US or are they all, all UK? Um, I believe, the, correct me if I'm wrong, the I am Satoshi. Mm. Interesting times indeed. It seems like we only just started the podcast with news of Craig Wright suing everybody, getting cross and all that malarkey. And now... Is this the beginning of the end for him, or at least his lawsuits? I mean, it's reached a conclusion, or this judge has at least reached the decision in this one particular case fairly quickly. I mean, this is episode nine, as you said at the start, so what, that's two months we've been going more or less? So it's gone from filing to this conclusion in what, three months, two and a half months, whatever it is. It's a fairly fast turnaround in terms of legal proceedings, I think. Yeah, and this, uh, this sets a precedence that he can't just, you know, tweak it a little bit and try again in the same country. Mm-hmm. So I didn't understand why he was filing it in the UK. And then I realised that he moved from Australia to the UK in 2015 and is trying to apply for British citizenship. And that, that's presumably why he did it here, because it was easier for him. Well, have you, have you seen what he, he said in his quote there in, in, on the other article that you posted to us, Joe? Did you, did you read that through? He said, uh, the defamatory attacks damage my integrity within the United Kingdom's community of business people. Being labelled as a fraud has a repellent effect with regard to future. <laughs> no one would reasonably enter into business dealings with someone thought to be a fraud. Mate, everyone thinks you're a fraud. Yeah, <laughs> everyone I, thinks you're a fraud. I think he's done this to himself. He, all he has to do is sign a transaction and we we'll believe him. Yeah, it won't I be mean, that. If you look, because he can't. <laughs> I mean, his, his claim that uh, if you're labelled as a fraud, you won't get any business, isn't quite true. I mean, if you think of famous financial frauds, so there's there was Enron, uh, Jeff Skilling is the head, was their CEO of Enron. He's now out and is looking into investing in cryptocurrencies. Then there is um, the guy that I can't remember his name of, um, the Wolf of Wall Street, who uh, is, you know, he sold a book, he sold a film, he does lots of business things. Then there was the collapse of Bearings Bank in the 90s with uh, Nick Leeson, who went to prison for a while, but then came out and started making movies and books. And he's a motivational speaker now. So I think this idea that you are accused of financial fraud and you can't get any business is also a bit bunk <laughs> as well. 
Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, it's very interesting. And we'll end this segment on a couple of tweets in the style of the Urban Dictionary, which unfortunately I cannot read on this podcast. <laughs> We're raising you, man. We can only say bum. <laughs> but in our opinion, and maybe here sue us for this, Craig Wright is a big bum. <laughs> <laughs> and and maybe they're not very safe for work, but we'll find a way to share the link to these tweets in our show notes. <laughs> because they are far more offensive than we are, and you better hope they've, they've got their lawyers ready. If they were famous people, they'd be getting sued straight away. Yeah, these tweets treatment. are rated PG-18. Or just don't read them if you're a child, please. so moving on to some of our recently published articles gavin is going to take us through what is a bitcoin backed loan gavin what are they and why would we like to use one thanks joe yeah uh i have recently been looking at uh bitcoin backed loans Uh, a bitcoin backed loan is not a loan of bitcoin as you might think um a bitcoin backed loan is a, a loan whereby you deposit an amount of Bitcoin or different cryptocurrencies, if you have them at your disposal, and in exchange, the service loans you an amount of fiat currency. Now, there are several companies offering uh, Bitcoin-backed loans. Uh, there's Nexo, uh, CoinLoan, Cambo Finance, Salt, Unchained Capital, um, and there's more companies popping up all the time. The main company I've focused on is Nexo. Um, Nexo are most likely the largest Bitcoin-backed loan provider at the current time. They are also one of the most secure. Like I said, you deposit your, your Bitcoin and you get um, a crypto, what they call a crypto credit line. Your cryptocurrency is worth about half um in terms of credit so if you deposit one bitcoin uh bitcoin's what about twelve thousand dollars today isn't it so you get around six thousand dollars in credit um the credit is deposited to a bank account of your choice and then you can use the fiat currency uh to spend on whatever you want uh, it's, it's an interesting concept because I mean, it's still a loan, so you still have to pay back the money that you borrow. Um, and in that sense, it functions as a traditional fiat loan product. There is the positive side of it, though, is that once you've finished paying off your loan, you still have your original deposit. So you deposit your Bitcoin, at the end of it, you get it back. Fingers crossed, the price of Bitcoin has just rocketed to the moon, and you've bought yourself something nice and then at the end of your loan you've got a bitcoin back that's hopefully worth fifty thousand pounds rather than uh ten thousand or whatever when you put it in um and that is also another thing that makes crypto backed loans interesting is that the value of your credit line can rise during the term of your loan so if the price of your deposit increases uh nexo um will increase the amount of credit available to you so that's also another nice feature i mean you don't have to take it of course but if it was something you needed you you could then take out a little bit more um another interesting 
part of the crypto backed loans uh, is that many of the services offering them also offer uh, secure deposit services that you can earn interest on. So you could deposit, say, um, you could deposit a load of Tether uh, and leave it with a company offering a Bitcoin back loan and earn a decent amount of interest on it uh, otherwise. So instead of just having it sitting around in your normal crypto wallet doing nothing, you can deposit it with a company like Nexo and earn interest, which is you know better than it sitting there doing absolutely nothing. And, and that interest so, is considerably higher than the bank's interest. So, I mean, you know, if you're looking for better rates, you know, banks' interest interest rates have been on the floor for years now. I mean, yeah, most most, most dealing of the, aspect of these services. Yeah, most of the companies I looked at are offering four percent plus. Nexo is offering eight, uh, and some companies are offering more than that. I'm not sure how sustainable it is to be offering. Uh, it even depends, more it depends on the coin you're depositing. Some coins they provide more interest. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, it, it does. Um, I think it. So what are they? What are they doing with your coins then to provide that interest? To give to give them to the people who want the loans. Okay. Right. Okay. So it's, so it's like a building society here in the UK. Yeah, uh, in many yes, ways it sort of functions like that. Yeah, um, and it does help move currency around to the people people that need it. Um, the deposits at Nexo are covered up to $100 million as well. So it's extremely secure. And if anything goes wrong, you will get, wow. your, you will get your crypto deposit covered, covered back. So I think, I think it's quite good. It's, a, it's an interesting way to get money for your crypto without selling it. I mean, like I said, it does come with the caveat that you are paying back the money anyway. So... But there are some interesting things that separate it from normal loans as well. You know, you're not going to get a credit check on, on your name. You know, you're not going to have restrictions, as you mentioned, on what you can spend the loan on. The costs Absolutely. are presumably lower than regular bank loans. You know, all those things really are some of the big benefits of this whole decentralized finance thing. That's but what, what are some of the risks then? Uh, presumably your loan is subject to the turbulent fluctuations the whole market experiences wow and there you go um if the price of the cryptocurrency market falls during the loan period you have to act relatively quickly to cover the the decrease in your in your credit line costs and that can be met by selling some of your cryptocurrency or paying back some of the loan uh, in fiat as quickly as you can. And they're not going to immediately start chopping into your your cryptocurrency. You do receive several warnings. But if you don't act upon the warnings, they do have to take uh, a small repayment from the cryptocurrency collateral to, you know, rebalance the account. Uh, which but is again, that's... Oh, yeah. I mean, it's no different in some aspects to if you miss a repayment on your loan with the bank, you're getting a fee added on there, you know, a late fee, whatever it might be. So, I mean, again, yeah, they take a, a take a limb or, you know, an old limb. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was firstborn like, child. <laughs> <laughs> the, the thing that's slightly different with this is that the fluctuations in the crypto markets can be enormous. Like, say, if you took a loan out in December 17. 
And then, you know, a week later, it plummeted like 50% or whatever it was, like some incredible amount. So I just, I, I first of all, then your crypto would be worthless. Mm-hmm. So wouldn't the loan company then struggle to make money back on selling your crypto? But then also you're going to have just end up in tremendous debt very quickly if that were to happen. And then the third thing is like, aside from taking your crypto, what can they actually do to enforce repayments? Mm. Yeah. Because if you if you got a loan at a very high rate and then the crypto bounces down to something very low, then you could just walk with the money in theory, couldn't you? And let them take the crypto and then you've got the money at the higher rate. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, to be honest, I, I don't know the actual answer for that, but if you're thinking of committing some sort of fraud... <laughs> I, I am not. I'm going to say there are some scrupulous people out there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, it, it's, it's a very fair, fair point. Um, I, I don't know the answer. I'm sure companies like Nex have thought about this and, and built it into their, their model, but... Like I mean, said, these companies are registered businesses decrease. at the end of the day, aren't they? I mean, they, you you would assume that they could chase you through the courts and whatever else if, if completely necessary. Yeah, but if the whole idea is that you can take out a loan with no credit check, no background info, no, you know, you've just a name and you deposit some crypto. Sure. But then I get if you have it sent to a bank account, then you have some sort of link to a bank account. So that would be one way of doing it. And as I say, as we said before, I'm not even sure how much risk Nexo or whichever company maybe is even assuming here, given, given that the the people who, who are depositing their crypto for interest are the ones supplying the, the finance at the end of the day. So how much risk is even on Nexo's shoulders? I'm not sure. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. As, as a customer, it seems like a very risky business. Yeah, you may get to keep your cryptocurrency, but if you want that kind of gambling, why not just go take out a futures contract? <laughs> and if you want the money, just go and sell it. This, you, you, with the volatility of the prices, you, I believe you're asking for trouble. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you are going to take out a Bitcoin back loan, the one thing I would say is stick to well-reviewed products and steer clear of anything that's offering... Perhaps anything that seems quite ludicrous, you know, if people are offering like a one-to-one ratio or, or, or anything like that, uh, that's that's the best way to approach it. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Gavin. Moving on to the hash rate. This has been a popular article we published only last week, six days ago. What exactly is it and why does it matter? Well, here's everything you need to know, and it's not as complex as it may seem. The hash rate is simply a metric to measure the power of your computer or a cryptocurrency and blockchain network such as Bitcoin. It is essentially comparable to horsepower measurements for your car or a gigahertz measurement for your computer. It is just a metric. And so so as it's a metric, the higher the number, the better, but it's split into two types. If you're a miner, you care about the hash rate of your computer or your, or your graphics card. So say Gavin's graphics card can mine four hashes a second and mine can mine six. That's a 50% increase I have over Gavin. Ooh. In the real world, 
<laughs> in the real world, we're actually using potatoes for graphics cards because most high-performance <laughs> graphics cards these days can mine somewhere in the range of 50 mega hashes per second, which is 50 million hashes per second. Wow, wow. And if we look at Bitcoin, even that's not enough to consistently earn you a decent amount of money. If we look at the hash rate of the entire network, which is just the sum of all the hashes being contributed by all the miners across the world, the current hash rate of Bitcoin is 68 exahash per second, which is 68 million, million, million. So 68 with 18 zeros after it. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) And so that's essentially what the hash rate is, but it does one very important job. In conjunction with the mining difficulty, which you can read about in our show notes below, the hash rate is used as, as kind of a metric. If you need five hash rates, a hash rate of five, we're not going to get into exahashes or mega hashes. If you just need five, but you've only got four, you, you're going to have a bit of a problem. So to stop the network grinding to a complete halt, the miners need encouraging to stay. So if everybody leaves, the hash rate goes down. But in order to process just as many transactions in the estimated 15-minute time frame for Bitcoin, and it may be much quicker for other networks, they need you know, something needs to happen. So you need to encourage the miners back. But there's also something you can do in the meantime. The mining difficulty makes it easier to mine Bitcoin when the hash rate is low, which means... The, the hashes, you can get more hashes for the same number of people. More hashes than I care. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so the hash rate, to get the hash rate back up, it's easier to mine. So more people come on, contributing their hash rates. So the hash rate goes up, the difficulty goes back up, and hopefully it stays roughly balanced, takes the same amount of time to process your transaction. And the final part of this is security. If a hash rate were to really fall, like half, maybe quarter, really low, it makes it far easier for a 51% attack to happen. If Gavin's computer can contribute 10 billion hashes per second and the network only has 15 billion hashes per second total, then it's cheaper and easier for Gavin to control the network with a 51% attack, which you can also read about in our show notes. So in short... Hash rate is just a metric to compare how good your computer is at mining and how fast the entire network is running. And that's it. It's really much simpler than it sounds. And so the future, when there are no more Bitcoins left to mine, what is the impact at that point? You say you, the, the, we need miners leave, the network grinds to a halt, you know, processing transactions, all this stuff. Yeah, so how in, that rough, into it? in roughly 120 years, which is the estimated time frame for all the Bitcoins to be mined. We know that when it, by halving it every year, it will never truly expire, but for all practical purposes, there's 120 years left. When that happens, hash isn't really necessary anymore. You know, they can't mine new blocks. They don't need to compete anymore. So miners will only get paid in transaction fees. And the hash rate has no bearing on that. Yeah, and the hope is that that in the future, by the time that happens, Bitcoin will either be astronomically high that the transaction fees are enough. Sure, okay. And because you don't need to do all these complex calculations anymore, you don't need such powerful computers to do it. So people will be setting up lightweight nodes, which you can do today, 
all over the place and people will be mining on far lower powered computers because it's just the simple transaction checking at that point. Mm-hmm. Okay. So at the current time, why don't we see more prominence of alternative blockchains to proof of work? Well, I think we are actually seeing a lot of those. Obviously, uh, proof of stake is the big one with cryptocurrencies such as Tron running that Mm. and possibly Ethereum switching to its proof of stake network, Casper, in a couple of years. Mm -hmm. But we have recently written a lot of coin studies where there are there's a huge variety of different consensus algorithms out there we know proof of work perhaps isn't the best one but it, it works well enough for now but a lot there's lots of experimenting going on out there so many of these are based on proof of stake but they throw in essentially you know they make uh, choosing the next super representative who gets to mine the next block um, random uh, so that you can't predict who it's going to be mm-hmm. or they throw in some more calculations or they, they mix it up a bit and combine lots of various other algorithms. There is a lot of innovation going on out there, but with over 2,000 cryptocurrency projects, there's a lot of copycats. And, you know, sometimes it's easier just copy the white paper to find and replace the name, <laughs> change a few bits here, man. Hey, look, I've got my own cryptocurrency. <laughs> Yeah, I think over time, I I do think it will shift more and more towards um, that, like you were saying, the the different proof of stake algorithms. Because even if the eventual energy required by the Bitcoin network decreases for the foreseeable future, I think if it's only going to increase, I don't see it as maintainable. If we're already using the power of, I think the last time I checked, it was more power than the entire con- the the entire country of the Czech Republic um, mm. and the US state equivalent it was like 14 or 15 states you know which is just is bonkers yeah but the hash rate is currently at its all time high which is quite exciting because bitcoin's not at its all time high price but there's more people mining it than ever before getting ready for which next is, year which is very comic. exciting <laughs> yes this time next year we could be looking at a very different story discussing bitcoins halving this time next year we'll all be on our boat in the caribbean podcast our moon lambos yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) oh boy (laughs) watch it rodney (laughs) if you're not from the uk only fools and horses is a classic show we can highly recommend (laughs) No cryptocurrency is involved in the show. (laughs) So moving on to private keys. We often speak about getting your money off the exchange, getting your coins off there, storing them yourself on devices such as the Ledger, uh, Ledger Nano X or S or the Tracer. Um, But what's the best way to do that? The internet is full of phrases such as not your keys, not your coins. But if you're storing them yourself... How exactly do you protect those keys, Dan? Very good question, Joe. Um, So I've got a a little confession to make, first of all, that Joe was actually responsible for this article and he asked me to cover it. And at first I thought maybe you just wanted to rest your voice a little bit, Joe, but then I thought maybe you were trying to drop some hints for me. So uh, I I thought I'd take a look and read through it. So 
let's have a look at some of the points that we've covered. Firstly, never store your private keys digitally. Now, I absolutely fail on this one. I don't know about you guys. I I mean, I probably shouldn't, shouldn't even say it on the podcast, but I'm going to. I keep my private keys in LastPass in a secure file there. So never keep them digitally. And by that, you know, Dropbox, Google Drive, LastPass, anything related to any of those. Obviously, firstly, they are hackable. And secondly, who knows what can happen to those various providers in the future. You know, if, if Google Drive suddenly takes it offline, Google have a propensity for killing their services willy-nilly. <clears throat> you know, maybe you leave it logged on. You, you're using a public computer in your university or school or in work, and you leave yourself logged in. All these little incidents could expose you to the risk, which is something you need to avoid. So tip one, don't keep your private keys digitally. Uh, number two, hide them. Now, that's, that sounds fairly obvious. But, <laughs> but where, Dan? <laughs> well, when, when, if you're using a hardware wallet, which is obviously the recommended way to store your crypto, don't keep it on exchanges or anywhere else, or even paper wallets. You buy a hardware wallet, they're not too expensive. Um, in your box there, when you open it up, you get a little slip of paper where you can write down your key. Put that somewhere safe. Now, don't put it somewhere that is safe, but is obviously safe. So in that, we're talking, don't put it at the back of the drawer. Don't put it under the doormat. Don't put it inside a fake plant, in the back of your wardrobe, you know, <laughs> in your back pocket, in your wallet, behind your TV, anywhere like that. You know, they are the first types of places. They might seem they might seem safe on the surface. They are the first types of places that people will check in the event of a burglary. You know, these people who come and burgle houses, they know where people store their high value possessions. And if any of these burglars, as we move into the digital age, is a little bit au fait with crypto, they might be on the lookout for those types of things. I think so, after the podcast, I'm going to have to remove mine from the toilet system. <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking, like, do you think there's blogs where like burglars can go and it's like the top five places where people will hide this and that? <laughs> if, if I bet there, there are. If there's not, there damn well should be. <laughs> Uh, I'm just looking on Reddit now to see if there's a little burglary subreddit to check out. <laughs> I bet it's private. No, seriously, seriously, I'm not a master criminal, so I could be wrong. But from my research I did for this article, the places we think are good, they're just, they're not. Because criminals, if we, as I said, at the back of a wardrobe covered in boxes, we think that's good because, you know, I know what's in all those boxes and I'll be very careful taking them out and it takes me 10 minutes. A criminal doesn't care what's in their box. They're going to toss them all out and then they'll find your treasure, even if they're not looking for it. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I do this when I'm on holiday as well. Like, you, if you go into a hotel or something that doesn't have a safe, I go, oh, I'll just put my passport, like, at the bottom of my bag. They're never going to look at the bottom of my bag. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's funny you mentioned the safe there because we do actually mention that in the article, that it's not even necessarily a good idea to, to put these these uh, these little slips of paper in a safe because unless you've got, you know, something that's mounted into your wall and weighs a million tonnes and, you know, you need dynamite to blow the door of it, you know, if it's just a little thing that someone could rip out fairly easily and make off with, it, you know, it just screams that you have something valuable in there. And the same applies to if you're putting your passport in there in the hotel or anything else, you know. So, so enough of about the bad places. Where are the good places? And I'd like to stress that these are Joe's suggestions for the good places. 
<laughs> Mine so, are not hidden here. <laughs> <laughs> so his address is... <laughs> uh, no, okay. Uh, under a floorboard? Well, give it a score out of 10. Under a floorboard? Good or bad? Uh, seven. Seven. Behind the wallpaper? <laughs> oh, behind the wallpaper? Oh, I like, I like that one. Like written on the wall behind it or as a piece of paper? <laughs> oh, I'd give that a six because it's good, but it might not be easy for you to access that one. Yeah, and then you and then you forget you put them there, you paint the wall, and then they're gone. For- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't move out. <laughs> uh, inside a wall cavity? That's got to be pretty good that's if it's a non-obvious. Yeah, if, if, you, if, you've got a wall, if you've got a spare wall cavity knocking around, then that's a good I mean, one. You could always make one. Yeah, just knock a hole in it. Yeah, <laughs> don't even fit it. It's, like, it's, like, it's like the whole Adams family thing, isn't it? You pull a book off the bookshelf and the, the yeah. around. Um, behind a kitchen unit under the counter, maybe a good one if you sellotape it. You mentioned sellotaping it, so it's not immediate, immediately obvious that it's there. I think that one's quite cool. It's accessible, but not super obvious if someone just opens the cupboard or the counter or the drawer or whatever it may be. Mm, yeah. And buried deep in the garden. So um, that's only suitable if you live in a place where it doesn't rain. Otherwise, it's going to be a muddy mess by the time you get it out. Also, like you can uh, wrap it up in like plastic, make it waterproof, and then put it in a fish tank and make it appear like a like a, an ornament for your fish or something like that. That's I don't trust those guppies. <laughs> okay, seven here's, second here's memory. <laughs> here's an idea that I just thought of could you put it on an NFC chip and then do some biohacking and put it in your skin oh, that's uh, interesting that's a good I mean, one yeah yeah but if yeah, someone knew that you had it then they you know they'd chop off your hand and just take your hand away and scan it yeah it's, what it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's when you try uh, risk of losing it it's when you try to pay using Google Pay in a shop and you accidentally pay 10,000 oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oops <laughs> uh, okay, and so uh, I think probably Joe, this is the most secure of your suggestions that you come up with, and that is to split the private key between different sites. So, you know, the, these keys are twelve or twenty-four words or whatever they may be. So, you know, maybe put every alternate word, so word one, five, seven, and so on. Put that in one location and put the even numbers in a different location. Maybe that's in the office, in the friend's house, in the family's house whatever. If the key's not complete, it doesn't really matter if someone finds it. They're only going to have half of the words, and unless they're going to sit there with a dictionary and, you know, work through it for several years, they're never going to crack into it. So I think that's probably the safest way of going about it. And I think that's something you do, you mentioned, Joe, right? You do split them up. I can neither confirm nor deny Very the existence <laughs> of my private keys. <laughs> but what I can say is that it's not really criminals you need to worry about people aren't breaking into your house looking for your private keys they're looking for your telly or whatever and if your crypto is taped to the back of a telly i mean if you tell you they've got that as well but, <laughs> perhaps the biggest concern is you know, natural disaster if a little piece of paper can easily mm. get washed away or burnt and if it's only kept in your bedroom and your house burns down you've lost it forever yeah that's a fair point yeah I would say maybe the average burglar that's nicking your uh, 42-inch plasma to sell at cash converters isn't necessarily going to realise the significance of a 24-wire seed on the back of a TV anyway, maybe. So someone might eventually... It's like you see these pictures of, I don't know, sort of second-hand external hard drives that people have picked up from, you know, years ago, and it says, like, big sticker on the back saying BTC, you know, Bitcoin on there. 
and no one knows the key to get on there. There could be thousands of Bitcoins on there and no one would know. No one knows how to get it locked away forever. So it could end up in a similar kind of situation. Cool. So I, I think I think that's probably the, the, the lot. Split it between different sites. Don't put it under the doormat. That's that's the top <laughs> tip for blocks decoding for the day. It's yours under the doormat. Uh, I don't have a doormat. Several doormats. <laughs> so it's time. just <laughs> lying on the drive. <laughs> Great. Thank so you, Dan. Cool. Yeah. Thanks. And so that concludes episode nine of the Blocks Decoded podcast. Thank you once again for joining us. And do do let us know what you found the most useful this week and let us know where you're listening from. As always, you can tweet us at Blocks Decoded. And it's goodbye from me, Joe. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from Dan. Bye, guys. Thank you for listening. Gavin. Yo, bye-bye. And James. See ya. We hope to catch you next time. Have a good one.